this evening's talk will be called Clearly Visible. And this is a, a reference to an expression we find repeatedly in the early canon. The Pali word is uh, sanditiko. And the Buddha says again and again that the Dhamma is clearly visible. Sanditiko. But before going on to that, I'd like to say what I mean by the word the Dhamma. Generally, in Buddhism today, the Dharma means the Buddha's teaching. Sometimes people think it means something like the truth. Literally, it means the law. But let's put aside all of that for the time being and look at an account where the Buddha describes his own awakening. And I'm using the word awakening in preference to the word enlightenment. There's only one word in Pali, bodhi. And it has as its root the idea of waking up. Now, what I feel is probably the most um, authoritative, in other words, the earliest account we find in the in the Pali Canon, for the Buddha's um, description of what it meant to be awake is found in a text called the, the Arya Pariyasana Sutta, the Discourse on the Noble Quest. Now, I'm not going to go into the detail of this. But basically, the Buddha describes his awakening as having reached this Dhamma, he calls it. And this Dhamma, um, he describes as twofold. On the one hand, it refers to uh, conditionality. The technical term is paticca sammupada, which means conditioned arising, dependent origination. And it's a generic term that refers to the simple, though complex, conditionality of all things. For the Buddha, there is no ultimate ground of being that lies beyond the conditional world. There is simply the experience of flux of causality, of conditionality, and everything that exists is an event within this matrix that has both sprung from something else, it's arisen conditionally, and it becomes the condition or the cause or the circumstance for something else happening. So it's a vision of the world in which there is uh, a complete uh, embrace of the phenomenal, conditioned 
fluctuating nexus of life itself. There's also something coherent about this conditionality. It's not just random chaos. Implied in this term is the idea of a certain lawfulness. In other words, certain conditions will generate, quite predictably, others. If you plant a mango seed, that will give rise to a mango tree. And so on. So it's not just a random flux, but it's a coherent and lawful flux. And the second aspect of the Dhamma is what he calls nirvana. Now, nirvana is not, as is sometimes thought, a kind of transcendent state of eternal peace. But nirvana is simply, simply, is simply the, the, the absence of, of greed, the absence of hatred, and the absence of confusion. And by confusion, we generally mean confusion about the nature of oneself. And this confusion is both a failure to understand something, but perhaps more importantly, it's a a distortion in which we get the impression, and it's probably generated biologically, that at the heart of this experience somewhere lies an unchanging core which is intimately bound up with my sense of being me. So we can see in a way how conditionality and nirvana play off one another. If we understood ourselves to be emerging out of a matrix of conditions and we in turn are a condition or a possibility that can give rise to something else, that in turn would dissolve or begin to to wear away this fixation about being a permanent, isolate, monad, me. Now, both of these um, uh, aspects of the Dhamma are described in this text as a ground, a tannang, a ground, So conditionality and nirvana are grounds. But what's curious is that they don't have the characteristics of what we usually think of as a ground. In other words, something solid, something one can can rest upon with some sense of security. These are grounds that are constantly slipping away. Conditionality is therefore a groundless ground. And nirvana is just the absence of greed, absence of hatred, absence of egoism. is also a ground but spoken of as an absence, as a loss of something, rather than the 
affirmation of something. And so when the Buddha describes his awakening, he describes awakening to this Dhamma of conditionality, of flux, of the absence of greed, the absence of hatred. And he describes this as something that he reached by letting go of his delighting and reveling in his place. And he says, and I'm quoting, for those who love delight and revel in their place, it is very hard and very difficult to awaken to this ground, conditioned arising and nirvana. So his awakening, therefore, is not understood here as gaining some special uh, cognitive understanding of the nature of reality, but rather it's seen as a kind of existential shift in which one lets go of a preoccupation with one's place, and this could mean any number of things, one's identification with a particular country, one's identification with a particular position one has in society, the identification might have, one might have with a political or religious belief, the identification one has with a certain fixed conception of oneself. And as long as one is preoccupied with these things, it becomes difficult to see, difficult to awaken to this ground of flux, of contingency, and of the absence of greed, and the absence of hatred. So what does um, he mean by these terms which I've mentioned? That this ground is difficult to see, difficult to awaken to. Why is that difficult? Why is that hard to do? Now again, we might, if we um, uh, accept or value this kind of um, understanding, perhaps if we're Buddhists. Um, We might be fully um, uh, open to these ideas. We would much rather plunge into the creative flux of the conditioned world, unconditioned by hatred and confusion and greed. But it's very easy to admire or yearn for such a condition, but it's very difficult to do it. It's very difficult actually to, uh, to, to, to get to that state of mind. It may be that in our lives we've had moments when we've had a glimpse or we've had a breakthrough, we've had a, an intuition of this sense of a world that is so much more rich and alive and vital than our normal, rather predictable, rather prosaic, um, everyday sense of ourselves and our environment and our attachments and so on. 
And I guess that for many of us coming on a retreat is you know, a conscious attempt to let go of those sort of preoccupations that seem to hem us in and wear us down and wear us out and open ourselves to another set of possibilities. But these things are said to be hard to see and hard to awaken to. I can think of a number of ways in which we might understand that. Something can be hard to understand or hard to see because it is uh, intellectually very difficult to figure it out. I suspect for most of us the general theory of relativity is hard to understand. I certainly don't understand it. But the difficulty lies in the fact that it is beyond our comprehension because it is very tricky, very challenging to understand. But I don't think that's what the Buddha means here. It's not as though the idea of conditionality or cause and effect is a particularly hard idea to grasp. In fact, it's quite an easy idea to grasp. It's not as though it's particularly difficult to um, conceive of moments in which we're no longer driven by greed, by hatred, by confusion. Intellectually, that's quite easy to grasp. So what does he mean by saying it is difficult to see? Another way in which something is is difficult or hard to see is because it's very painful to pay attention to it. It's very difficult, for example, to watch um, an animal being tortured. It's very difficult sometimes to witness a parent who is suffering from Alzheimer's. So being difficult to see and difficult to understand often means not intellectually difficult to grasp, but emotionally difficult to accept. It's almost too hard to bear. It's too painful in some way. And I suspect very much that this is what the Buddha had in mind. And the clue to this lies in the Pali words themselves. The word he uses for hard to see is du daso. Du daso. Hard to awaken to is dur anubodhi. And both these words have the same prefix, D-U, do. And this is the same D-U, do, as in that ubiquitous Buddhist term, dukkha, suffering. So what I think is suggested here is the reason it's hard to awaken to conditionality, the reason why it is hard to awaken to the absence of greed and hatred is because to do so is somehow painful. These things are hard to bear, particularly if and when our lives are 
invested in the security and the certainties of our place. And I think in in practical terms, we often experience this when, for example, we lose our job. Or if we go through a divorce. um, Or if we are vilified in the press. That what once was a very consoling and comfortable place to be, something we could delight and revel in as our place, is suddenly no longer there, or has suddenly become problematic. And what we experience in those moments of crisis or loss is our life in the raw, as impermanent, as subject to change, as ungrounded, as constantly slipping away, as unpredictable, uncontrollable. Aging, sickness, death, all of these things somehow expose to us the reality of this ground of life. And I think the reason that they're so hard to understand and to awaken to and see is because they're difficult to bear. And I feel the same is true when we sit down on a retreat like this, be it a Zen retreat or any kind of meditation retreat, when, where we're simply asked to, to, to shut up, sit down and notice what's going on. It might sound like a nice idea sometimes. <laughs> But very often what it uh, reveals, once the novelty wears off, is something really rather uncomfortable. Something that's quite difficult to stay with. And as we might have noticed, uh, the mind would rather do anything than just be with the breath. Just be with the sounds of the birds outside. It sounds like a nice idea. But why, therefore, will we almost instinctively rebel at having to do this? Why does the mind race off into memories, into fantasies, into plans? No matter how earnest and sincere we are in our commitment to such a practice, there's something else within us that um, is, is, is almost terrified, it seems that is constantly running away, off into never-never land, or else we get compulsively drowsy and sleepy and groggy and thick-headed, which I think in many respects is not physical tiredness, but a kind of strategy of evasion. So we come, I think, here to a a bit of a dilemma. On the one hand, um, the Buddha is saying that this Dhamma is hard to see, hard to awaken to, if we're attached to our identity, our place, our position, and so on. And yet, elsewhere, and repeatedly, he seems to say the opposite. He says that the Dhamma is clearly visible. How can something be 
clearly visible and at the same time hard to see. He uses both terms. So what's going on? Now, this question bothered a man called Molia Sivaka. Molia Sivaka was a, a wandering ascetic at the Buddha's time. Uh, we don't know much about him. He appears only twice in the Pali Canon. And on both occasions, he asks a question of the Buddha and is given an answer. Remember that he's not a Buddhist. The word Molia means top knot. So he was a top knotted ascetic. He had his hair tied up in a bun on the top of his head. Now he comes to the, the Buddha and he, he asks him, Well, what do you mean when you say that the Dhamma is clearly visible? And this is the Buddha's reply. He says, well then, Sivaka, I'll question you about this. Answer as you see fit. What do you think, Sivaka? When there is greed within you, do you know there is greed within me? And when there is no greed, do you know there is no greed within me? And then he asks the same thing in the repetitive style of these texts. Do you know whether there is hatred within you? Do you know whether there is not or no hatred within you? Do you know if there is confusion within you? Do you know if there's no confusion within you? And to all of these questions, Sivaka says, yes. Yeah, I, I, I understand that. I know when I'm feeling greedy, attached, desirous. I know when I'm feeling hateful and angry. I know when I'm feeling muddled and confused and selfish. And I know for myself when I look inside my mind to find these things are not there. And then the Buddha replies, and it is in just this way, Sivaka, that the Dhamma is clearly visible immediate, inviting one to come and see, applicable, to be personally known by the wise. Now there's a lot packed into this question and the answer. Um, it's interesting, for example, that the Buddha doesn't just give a sort of a simple answer to the question. What do you mean by clearly visible? Oh, I mean this. Here we have an example of what um, in the Western tradition is called a, a, a myotic approach to understanding. Myotic means in the manner of a midwife. Uh, it's a Socratic idea. Socrates doesn't tell people what's what, he engages them in conversation and he draws out, as a midwife draws out a baby, he draws out an understanding within their own minds. This, in fact, is the meaning, literally, of the word education. It means to draw out, educare, 
So the Buddha doesn't um, tell Sivaka what the answer to the question is. He, he gets Sivaka to inquire within himself and then come up with the answer himself. Now this style of uh, dialogue is, of course, something we find very much in the classical dialogues of Zen Buddhism. If you look at the collections of the koans, it's it's an exchange between a teacher and a student. And what the teacher does in these exchange is to create a, a sense of puzzlement or confusion in the student such that the student comes to a resolution on his or her own. This is a form of teaching that's not dogmatically delivering a set of truths that have to be accepted and believed in and memorized, but rather it's a kind of teaching that asks of the student to engage in a particular style of inquiry whereby they themselves come to an understanding which is their own. In other words, it's more authentic in a way. What's also, I think, important to point out here is that uh, Sivaka doesn't have to become a Buddhist to understand this. Um, There's no interest whatsoever in converting this person to Buddhism. Here is someone, we don't know much about him, but he is just as capable as anyone else, including the Buddha's disciples, one assumes, to arrive at the understanding of what is the Dhamma. And the Dhamma here is is an acknowledging that um, you know for yourself when there is attachment, when there is hatred, when there is confusion in your own mind. And you also know for yourself now, here and now, that there are moments when there is no greed, no hatred, and no confusion. Now remember, that is the definition of nirvana. So the Dhamma is clearly visible because we can see and feel and intuit and know for ourselves that we can be ungreedy, un hateful, unconfused. That possibility is right here and now for anyone, whether they're Buddhists or Jews or Muslims or Christians or atheists or secularists or whatever. It's got nothing to do with any of that. They're the places we get attached to. But the Dhamma is right here before your eyes. Now, in the Buddha's answer, he starts by saying clearly visible, and then he lists a sequence of adjectives, um, which, as it were, tease out, flesh out what he means here. He says the Dhamma is clearly visible, and he also says it is immediate. What does that mean? 
Now, the Pali word is akaliko, which literally means without time. And what it's pointing to is that this experience of the Dhamma does not depend upon um, a gradual process of reflection and meditation over time. Now, this, of course, is a key feature of Zen, what they call sudden awakening. In other words, what we're, in a sense, inquiring into and opening ourselves to is present right here and now. This absence of greed, absence of hatred, absence of confusion, this conditionality, this rising and passing away, this complex web of events and circumstances that is occurring moment to moment. It's right here, clearly visible, immediate. You don't have to wait for some time down the road when you've gained enough merit or you've done enough retreats or you've studied enough difficult Buddhist texts. You just have to look into your experience here and now. A good example of this in, in Zen is the famous exchange um, we find in the Lin Chi Lu, the record of Lin Chi or Rinzai, where Lin Chi is he's a ninth century Japanese Zen teacher, no, not Japanese, Chinese Zen master, the founder, in fact, of the school in which we trained in Korea, that of Imje Son or Rinzai Zen. And Lin Chi was giving a talk one day, and he was and he said, "There is a going in and out of your face in this very moment is a true person of no status." Those of you who have not seen this, look, look. And then someone in the audience raises his hand and said, could you say a little bit more about this true person of no status, sir? At which Lin Chi steps down from his teaching platform, goes straight to this guy, it's a monk, grabs him by the lapels and says, speak, speak. And the monk hesitates. So Lynchy pushes him aside, storms off back to his room, and says, what a dried up piece of shit is that true person of no status. <laughs> now you don't get this kind of language in the Pali canon. <laughs> but I think the idea is very much the same. Um, in other words, this true person of no status, which is a beautiful idea, I think, uh, it's not denying that there is any person at all, like no self, but it's recognizing that one can be fully what one and who one is as soon as we stop identifying and being attached to our place. Remember the Buddha describes his awakening as... Um, of letting go of the place to which we identify and opening to our contingent ground of life itself. 
The, other t- the next term the Buddha uses in describing, describing the Dhamma, he says it is ehipasiko, um, which is translated generally as something like inviting. But the word literally means come here and look. Again, very reminiscent of Lin Chi. Look, look, come here and look. The Dhamma is basically inviting you to just come and see what's going on. And I think what it suggests is that conditionality or contingency, conditioned arising, and nirvana, the absence of greed and hatred, already hold some kind of intuitive appeal for us. Perhaps as a sort of barely audible call of what is most authentic within us that intuitively we somehow know that all of these stories we tell about ourselves, all of our conceits, all of our fears, are kind of groundless in a way. That in the face of birth and death, there's something rather more more palpable, rather more authentic, rather more real in a way, even though it's constantly slipping between our fingers It's also a kind of basic honesty or or sanity from whence we, in our truest moments, uh, find ourselves observing ourselves, observing others, observing the world. And finally, the Buddha describes the Dhamma as applicable, opanaiko. In other words, it's something to put into practice. It's not some theory or doctrine or belief, it's something to do. And it's also something, he says, that is personally experienced by the wise. And again, the wise here just refers in the general sense to the wise people of our world. It doesn't refer to people who belong to a particular religion or philosophical tradition the sage or the wise person kind of knows this already in a way. And we're all, I think, potentially sages, potentially wise. In some ways, um, this whole approach almost makes things sound too easy. For for Sivaka, the Dhamma became transparent to him and present as soon as he recognized the presence of greed and hatred within himself and the presence of their absence. And in some ways, Molia Sivaka, Totnot Sivaka, um, is a figure who just stands for the puzzled everyman. In other words, you and me. So in other words simply to recognize that within our experience there is the presence of greed or attachment or desire and the absence of greed or attachment or desire, the presence of hatred, the absence of hatred, the presence of fear, the absence of fear, the presence of egoism, the absence of egoism. That is already to see nirvana, 
And in fact, we have another passage where the Buddha is talking this time to um, a Brahmin called Janusoni. And he says, Nirvana is clearly visible. Um, in a person who has let go of greed and hatred and confusion, who in that moment is not identified with those instincts or those drives, who's aware of their absence in his or her experience. Which is something probably when we're sitting in meditation we spend a fair bit of time doing. Once the mind begins to quieten down, once we become a little bit clear as to what's happening, as we become open and relaxed, we notice that many minutes can go by in which we're not being pushed and pulled by our conflicting emotions. And that is nirvana. We don't have to look any further. That is the experience of nirvana. But in this passage with Janusoni, um, the Buddha teases out further implications of what this means to reside in such a frame of mind. He says, such a person in such a state neither plans for his own harm nor for the harm of others nor for the harm of both. And he does not experience in his mind any suffering or grief. It's in this way, Janusoni, that nirvana is clearly visible, immediate, inviting one to come and see, applicable to be personally experienced by the wise. So in other words, exactly the same phrase. The Dhamma and nirvana are synonyms. The implication here, therefore, is that the, the absence of greed, the absence of hatred, the absence of confusion is not just a simple lack or absence. Because in that case, the Statue of Liberty would be in nirvana. <laughs> there's no greed, there's no hatred, there's no confusion in the Statue of Liberty, but I doubt <clears throat> many of us would regard the Statue of Liberty as an Arhant or a Buddha. So clearly, although we're using the word um, absence of, we're not using it as a simple privative. There is no. And this is often one of the things that is puzzling in Buddhism, that negatives not very often mean... Um, not just the absence of, but the presence of the opposite of that thing. And so here we have a person without greed, hatred, delusion. is not just in a kind of zonked out, sort of indifferent state, but arrives at a certain moral perspective. And this moral perspective is one in which You'd no longer plan for your own harm. 
you no longer plan for the harm of others. And you no longer plan for the harm of both self and others. And this principle, that of non-harming, is very often seen as the basis of ethics in the Buddhist teaching. So this state of nirvana is also um, a condition in which you, as it were, transcend or let go of any uh, tendency towards violence. Violence being understood here as inflicting harm on either yourself or others. This doesn't mean, of course, that when we're not um, in this still, spacious, open, radiant state that we're constantly plotting how to do evil acts. But rather, as long as we're under the, um, the power of our attachments, our fears, our hatreds, our likes, our dislikes, we're in a frame of mind that potentially can lead to us uh, thinking and saying and doing things that end up causing oneself uh, grief, uh, distress, depression, and cause others, maybe not physical violence, but we find ourselves doing things that, that hurt other people, that... Um, offend them, that confuse them. So what this experience of, uh, of nirvana is about is, is, is in a sense a recovery of our own uh, deepest moral intuitions, the basis on which we subsequently engage in our relationships with the world. And this, I think, is a very important point because nirvana is very often spoken of as the goal of Buddhist practice. Many Buddhist texts, many traditions seem to be saying this. But in fact, what's pointing out, being pointed out here is really rather different. Namely, that nirvana is not the end point of a practice, but is actually bringing you to its beginning. It's the ground, as the Buddha calls it, from which we then engage with the world. It's a perspective from which we are unconditioned in those moments by our attachments, our fears, our hatreds, and are thereby able to consider how to respond, to behave in a way that's not driven by those forces that so often lead to creating harm for ourselves, for others, and for both. And it's also, as the text says, a state of great peace, uh, he does not experience in his mind any suffering or grief. Now here suffering, I think, clearly refers simply to a kind of 
inner anxiety or anguish or worry or despair or distress. And in practice, because these things often come up, when we, we, why we find it hard to meditate very often is because we're exposed to our own anxieties, our own worries, our fears, our insecurities, whatever it might be. It might also, meditation might also release all kinds of traumas that we've suppressed or forgotten. So in practical terms, um, to, to, to practice this kind of awareness is to have the courage in a way to be totally open to whatever is going on. And yet without buying into its story. So if you experience anxiety or worry or whatever it might be in the meditation, you simply breathe into it, hold it, acknowledge it for what it is. And in the end, all it is really is the play of the conditions of your mind. These things arise, they remain for a while, and if you don't buy into them, if you don't go along with them, if you don't get caught up in them, then by their very nature they will start to fade and dissolve and pass away. It might take some time. But the practice is very much about um, opening oneself with a, a kind of almost unconditional honesty. Putting aside whatever fantasies you might have as to what meditation is about and as the Buddha says to Sivaka being aware that there is greed or let's say anxiety in the mind and when there is not greed and not anxiety in the mind and trying to learn to live from that uh, perspective that um, is not determined by such content whether it be attachment, whether it be fear, whether it be worry or whatever. It doesn't mean to suppress these things, but it means to be able to hold them in a more spacious, uh, in a more understanding, in a kinder way. So that's all I'm going to say this evening. Um, we have a little bit of time if there are any comments or questions. Um, two questions. One is how do you relate to the person of no status when, for example, you know, you spend, we spend a lot of our time building up status just for survival. You know, you're the workshop leader, published author, and many other things. I wonder how you hold that. Well, the, the, this business, um, let's go back to the earlier text where the Buddha says that it is hard for people who um, love, delight, and revel in their place to see this ground. In other words, if you are preoccupied with your, with your status, let's say as a published author, for the sake of argument, or a <laughs> retreat leader, for the sake of argument, if you're preoccupied with that, then, you've, then you have, as it were, cut yourself off or obscured the very ground of your life, because that's all you think about. But 
On the other hand, um, the, the problem doesn't lie in the fact that you have a status. Let's say the Buddha. The Buddha was always a citizen of Kapilavastu. He was always the son of Suddhodana. He was always the head of the Buddhist Sangha. The problem, as long as we live in this world, we are going to have a particular status, unavoidably. You can't do anything about it. I can never stop being British, for example, as much as I would like to sometimes. Uh, that is something, it's a, it's, a, it's a given. So the problem doesn't lie in the status itself. The problem lies in your relationship to it. The problem lies in, in, in investing some sort of importance in being the workshop leader or being the published author. And you notice in meditation or you notice in everyday life how much time you spend sort of, uh, you know, running around in your mind around uh, your status. Like when you uh, are, are distracted in meditation, um, that may not happen to you, but it happens to me. <laughs> that if you look at the stories that you run, um, well, let's say that instinctively run by themselves because you don't actually choose them very often, you'll find that a lot of them have to do with your inner monologue about your status. You're firming up what people think about you, what you think about yourself, da-da-da-da-da-da. So the problem is not the status. The problem is the fact that you invest too much importance in it, you identify with it, you get fixated on it, and as long as you are caught up in that mental game, you're actually, uh, it, it, it functions as a kind of anesthetic. And, and that's one of the reasons why it's so appealing. It's why the Buddha says we love, delight, and revel in it, because it actually serves as a kind of a, a very comforting buffer zone between birth, sickness, aging, and death, between the actual existential condition that we face as human creatures. Whereas meditation, or spiritual reflection, or whatever we call it, is actually challenging that and saying, look into the actual condition of your life. Um, pay attention to the fact that you are mortal, that your life is running out, that you're aging, that you are prone to accidents at any moment. You could have a heart attack in an hour's time. And the more that you attend to that, the more you somehow subvert your preoccupation with your, your status and your place. But you can never get to a point where you will literally have no status or place. It's learning to live with those things more lightly rather than pretending that you can somehow escape them forever. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.